Now, previously on our show, I want to summary and recreate um, where we are in this story because we did have kind of a to-be-continued set of Sundays. Um, and so this is important. Um, and so uh, we're going to talk about, I want to try to recreate the situation again. You had, you had Jesus um, had told the disciples he had met with them in Jerusalem. He had had the interaction with Thomas. And, um, and then after the interaction with Thomas, he had told them to go to Galilee, go to Galilee and wait for him there. So they do, and apparently while they're waiting, they decide to go fishing because that's what fishermen do when they don't know what to do is they go fishing, and so they say, let's go fishing. And so they start fishing that night, which you fish on the Sea of Galilee at night, and, and so he said, uh, so they, they go, you know, seven of them say they're going to go fishing, they're going to fish that night, and as the, throughout the night, they're not catching any fish, and of course, you can imagine, this isn't from Scripture, but you can imagine that at some point, John or someone would have said, like, man, when was the last time we fished all night and caught nothing? And, of course, whether Peter would have caught onto that already going, well, I remember the last time I fished all night and caught nothing. It was the next morning that Jesus called me into ministry. And so now, all of a sudden, as we talked about last week, um, you can go back and get the details on this, that, that now, all of a sudden, not catching fish becomes important. And as I throw out these nets, and so I actually got, um, there's different ways that they fish in the Sea of Galilee. One is with a throw net, kind of an individual thing that you just kind of throw it out there like that. Um, this is more of a what's called a drag net or a seine net. And so it's a massive net that they would throw out and then, and then move around or even do it between two ships or whatever. And, and you would, they would, part of why they would do it at night is partially like we talked about so they could put out lights and draw the fish in. And part of it is because so the fish can't see it and they swim into it and they get tangled. Um, if you don't believe that you get tangled in this, ask Vicki Robbie. She just caught tangled in it a few minutes ago. So anyway, that's a, it's easy to have, like I, I did too. I got caught where we were setting it up, stepped on it, and then it was following me all around. So um, that's, that's what this is. And so they would catch fishes. So you can imagine all night throwing this out, dragging it, pulling it in, nothing. Throwing it out, dragging it in, nothing. Hour after hour after hour. You can see the significance. You can also, by the way, it helps you go back to Luke chapter 5, when they had already put these nets up and were drying them and had were mending them, how when Jesus comes and says, hey, even though they're now probably taken care of and mended and dried out, let's throw them back in the water, they would go, uh, no, like we wouldn't want to do that. This is, this is a lot of, I mean, Paul's not halfway down on this one. I don't know how long theirs were, but it, this one stretches all the way to the wall. So you have this image, right? You now picture how, what they're doing, throwing it in the water and all that kind of stuff. Good. Thank you, Paul. Um, all right, so, um, so here we go. That's where they, they've been doing that all night. They catch nothing. At some point, that becomes extremely significant. Now Peter's got to be stuck up in his head going, we're not catching anything. Every time they pull the net up and they check it, and it has absolutely nothing in it. Galilee was a, a fishing sea. It was a fisherman's delight. They caught fish in it all the time. And so to catch absolutely nothing would have been extremely strange probably. So here they are going nothing, nothing, nothing all night. And at some point, a little fire starts over on the beach. And Peter's heart has to leap in his, in his chest as he sees that. And then as the sun comes up and they can see there's someone over there, there's a guy standing over there. By the way, I have a picture of the north end. Did I, did I, I forgot to do that in the first service. So the north end of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee is stony and rocky like everything is over there. They have seven springs along the end. There's only a couple of them that they found. That's one of them that are warm water springs. And so as they pour into the water, of course, that causes the algae and everything to grow. And then the... Uh, fish are attracted to that. So the north end of the sea is the fisher sea. But that's, 
Um, literally, that's what it looks like. You can imagine a guy sitting down and amongst those rocks and having started a charcoal fire, right? That's not hard to picture. If you pictured a beautiful beach or something, that's probably not accurate for the time. Um, it, it would have looked more kind of like that. Okay, so, so there we are, and, and the sun, now the sun is starting to come up. When the sun comes up, you start getting the wind over the Sea of Galilee when you start having the, the heat differential. We have a little video, a very short video. This is the sun going down. Some of the ladies from our church um, not able to keep the hair out of their face because of the wind that's there as they're getting blown around. It's, it's impressive when you're out there. The wind is, is loud, it's noisy, um, and it's, it's blowing like that all the time. So when you have the differential at night, at, at, as the sun's going down, as the sun coming up, so you can imagine you would have had here now. Wind is coming up, the sun is coming up, and Peter has now sees him. John says, the guy shouts, do you have you caught any fish? And no. And the guy says, well, throw out the the stranger at this point, throw the net out on the right side. And they do, and as they throw it out, and they, they curl it down, and they drag it, and then they start to pull, and it's suddenly full of fish, massive numbers of fish, 153 fish, and they're trying to pull it up, and they can't even carry it, so they have to just drag it to shore. Peter throws on clothes, dives into the water, and swims to be with his Lord, but apparently just kind of stands there. We don't know for sure what happened, but in the Bible, it gives us no information. So, so I'm going to just assume that, that Peter gets to the shore, climbs out of the water, standing there dripping, head to toe, wet, and just kind of stands there. And this man, maybe covered in cloak, maybe still it's too dark to see who he is, is sitting by this small charcoal fire. He's got some fish and some bread laid out over this little fire. And it seems that Peter just kind of stands there, and then the rest of the fishermen catch up with him in the boat, and it says that Peter goes and drags the net up onto the shore, and the guy sitting there says, bring some of your fish that you've caught, and which you would assume they do, and probably clean them. But we get no, no narration, no back and forth, no conversation between, we, we know it's Jesus, because John has told us, the audience, is Jesus, and, and then we have the, these seven sitting around, apparently eating fish and bread and not speaking. And the commentaries actually agree that like probably this is meant to imply that they, just, they were just in silence. No one was prepared to speak. No one wanted to be the first one to say anything. I don't know how long this went on. But here we picture, that's where we pick up. There he stood, dripping, uncertain, exhausted from fishing all night, holding a piece of bread in one hand and a fish in the other hand. This is not a peaceful situation, even though peace was our word last week. The question now is, how well does he know Jesus? What's about to happen? What's going on in Peter's head? I'm, I suspect that Peter thinks that what's about to happen is that Jesus is going to tell him. Remember that parable I told once of someone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back? They're not fit for the kingdom. I meant you, Peter. Like I gave you all this. I came all this distance. I came all the way from the throne of glory down to earth. I did all this for you and, and I claimed you and I renamed you and everything and you defied me. You denied me even though I warned you you were going to do it. Like maybe you need to get back to fishing. I've got to think that's what Peter has going on in his heart and in his mind scattering around. Jesus now has intentionally and miraculously recreated Peter's calling. Peter has to be wondering what does this mean? What's about to happen What's going to happen now? He's created even the chance for Peter to re-engage emotionally with the Sea of Galilee with a charcoal fire. Remember the last time he saw that was, was at the denial with broken bread and broken fish. And the others join him on the shore. And that's where we pick up this episode. 
All right, okay, so now we're ready to, to step straight into where we were. Sorry, that's a reference to last week. If you missed it, you gotta go back and listen to it. Okay, so here they are sitting in relative silence, it seems, for breakfast, and when they had finished breakfast, it says in verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I think the language here is Simon Bar-Jonah, but meaning the, the son of Jonah, or the same, the same name as Jonah the prophet, which would have been Peter's father. Simon Bar-Jonah, do you love me more than these? What question would we have expected here? How is this conversation going to begin? Are you sorry, Peter? Do you realize what you've done? Do you understand your role in all of this? Do you promise to change? Do you realize that you're a, a terrible person? Like, I don't, I don't know where you come from or what you would have expected this conversation to be. But Jesus' first language, is, first question is, do you love me? And it's weird, there's debate over this last little section, do you love me more than these? More than what? The nets, the fish, the boats, the sea, the other apostles? What is Jesus asking here? Do you love me more than these? Is that what he means? Is it, do you love me more than you love these things? More than you love these people? More than you love whatever else goes with it? Oh no. Or is it, or is it he's saying, do you love me more in comparison? Like these guys love me five, do you love me seven? Maybe that's what he's asking. I think it's something along those lines because I think that here Jesus is referencing some of the last things we've seen between Peter and Jesus, which was Peter saying this, though all should forsake you, yet I will not. Here, Peter has pitted himself in competition with the other disciples. They may all run. They may all forsake you. I won't. It's a moment of pride for Peter. No, no. Even if the other 11 run from you, even the other 10 at that point run from you, I won't. And I think Jesus is saying here, he's reminding him back to that. Really, Peter? Looking back, do you love me more than these? See, but that's not exactly what he says. What words do you think Peter feared the most in this moment? What would have been the first words to come out of Jesus' mouth to make his heart get cold? I think it might have been Simon. Think of how much, if Jesus had called him Peter here, how much relief that would have given Peter instantly. I mean, he's got to be thinking in turmoil. We just didn't catch fish all night. This is obviously a recreation of God's, of when Jesus called me, and so Jesus turns to him and starts, Simon Barjona, not Peter the Rock. I have to think his heart sank. This is not a good start. I have to think that's what's going on here. Do you love me more than these, Simon Barjona? More than spouse, more than children? This is a good question for us to ask too. More than spouse, more than children, more than family, more than house, more than businesses, more than churches, more than whatever, more than our bank accounts, more. You pick it. Do we love that? I think it's a great question for us to be asking ourselves as well. In pride, do we think of ourselves as being better than other people in the way we love Jesus? Where do we stand? Our Sunday emphasis in the middle of Advent here is love. That's our word today, as, as John said. And so as we engage in this, we're going to see a parable of love played out in teaching and in deed that will revolutionize our concept of love. I hope you're going to see it in a new way than you've ever understand it. So I'm going to pray that the Spirit will open our eyes to this. Father, I, I ask that you, your Spirit would work in our hearts now. God, as we see one of your most beautiful pictures of love, I pray that this would give us a new standard 
a new definition, a new understanding, that you would give us new eyes and new ears, that you would give us new strength and new soul for this idea of love as you understand it. And I pray that will be our understanding as well. We pray this in your son's magnificent name. Amen. Now, interestingly, Jesus didn't call Peter, Peter very often, um, except the one time when he very much so does, very, very clearly does, is when he's warning Peter against the denials, actually, is the main time that he does it. But we see in Matthew 16, when Jesus gave Peter this name, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's asking this of a group of young men here. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, Matthew's already given him the name, replied, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Same words. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, the rock, the stone. You are Petros, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is quite literally Peter's defining moment. He's given a new name, a new identity, a new ministry, a new role. Now he's called Peter, but Jesus begins this conversation, Simon Barjona. He's going back to reconnect here. So we have that. Simon Barjona, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Now Peter's answer is a little odd here. He calls him Lord. Remember that? That's an important word we looked at last week, Kyrios, that, that idea of, of Jesus being truly his Lord. So he's, he's connected to that. That is solid in his heart and soul. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. But Peter's answer doesn't mirror Jesus' question. Some of you may have seen this before, but he doesn't. Intriguingly, here's what it says. The, Greek, the English does not do the Greek justice here. Simon Barjona, do you love me? Here Jesus uses the word agapeo, to love it's, it's, an, it's an idea that transcends most of our understandings of love. This isn't a feeling of love. This isn't, this isn't merely a, an emotion or a romantic interest or anything weird like that. This is, this is a devotion kind of love. The King James defined, usually translates this word charity to help us understand. It's a, it's a one-directional, it's a completion of love. Devoted, perfected, given with nothing expected in return. Selfless, complete, Simon Barjona. Do you agapeo me? Peter's answer is different. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but it's not the same word for love. Here we have phileo, to befriend, to be fond of, to be a fan for, to support. It's not as strong a word. Agapeo is the most extreme form of love. Phileo is lesser, is a lesser love. It's an important one. It's a vital one, but it's a lesser one here in this context. Jesus uses the word this. Peter uses the word friendship. Simon Barjona, will you give it all for me? Will you live for me and will you die for me? Am I the fulfillment of your devotion? Yes, Lord, I'm a big fan. 
I'm your friend. This is a different Peter. This is a different Peter who proclaims himself. Though all others would, would, though they would run away, I won't. And Jesus, now we have Peter being honest with him. That's not who I am. I don't have that to give. I'm a friend. I'm a fan. John 21, 16, so he says to him a second time, Simon Barjona, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says to him, tend my sheep. But again, it's the same thing. Jesus uses the word agapeo. Peter uses the word phileo. This is not, it's not the same thing. Yes, Lord, I do love you, but it's not the same kind of love that you're asking for. It's not the same type of devotion that you're calling me to. Maybe you noticed also that the, that the instruction at the end changed a little bit. It went from feed my lambs to tend my sheep, and that actually is different in the original language. Um, it's feed my lambs here, the, the word lambs, young, uh, a young sheep, a lamb. He uses this word only once, like here in John, but this is, a, this is a word John really likes. He uses it 28 times in the book of Revelation. It's like he catches a vision for this idea, and then he really expounds on it when he's teaching through Revelation and understanding it. This is, this is to those who can give not the weak, the poor, the least, the children, the lambs. Then tend my sheep references the more mature sheep, a fully grown sheep. This is a shepherd my sheep type of language. The third time, so the first time, feed my lambs. Second time, tend my sheep. The third time, feed my sheep. And there may be a mystery in here that I'm missing that's, that's significant. What it seems to me to be saying here is all of them. You take care of of all of them. This is now your job. The young, the old, the established, the new, all of them. This is now part of what you're supposed to be doing. Feed my sheep. Now I do think, and, and by the way, the, the, the verbs here really overlap with one another. Shepherding, pasturing, herding, tending, feeding. It's the language of taking care of. It is intriguing to me that, it, that as Christians we are often um, referred to, God's followers are often referred to as sheep. That's, that's not a positive connotation. It's, it's meant to be somewhat insulting um, that we are sheep and that all of us like sheep go astray. The whole human race really is kind of seen that way, that we're like sheep. Um, how many of you seen, there was a video that went around for a while that showed a guy pulling, uh, like you just see the little, a couple little feet sticking up out of a hole in the ground and they, the guy starts dragging the sheep out, and it turns out to be a fully grown huge sheep. Like it's, it's like a magic trick. He just keeps pulling and keeps pulling, and it turns out there's this full-grown sheep that somehow has dug its, stuck its whole head in the ground and just kept moving forward deeper and deeper into the hole. Like, that is so us. Like, if you, if you don't identify with, like, this, this is exactly, you ever had Jesus pull you out of a hole and go, like, why was I in that hole? Like, what was I thinking? I stuck my nose in there, and the next thing you know, I'm down to my ankles in this hole, and somebody else is going to have to pull me out. Like That's, that's kind of the picture we're supposed to have. They're, they're not smart animals. Now, one of the ironies is, of course, is that we're also called to be shepherds, so we're this strange um, combination. We are sheep shepherds, and usually that's not a good idea. Um, usually you don't want to go to the sheep to shepherd you. That's not, that's not a good strategy, and that's why we're so bad at it, right? I mean, we can all be able to acknowledge that, that we're, not, we're, we're too good at being sheep, which is not a compliment, and we're not very good at being shepherds, and we're trying to do both, and that's part of why we aren't very good at it, and we can all acknowledge that we're not very good at it. 
And that's okay because we have an over-shepherd who's really, really good at it and who even embraces what it means to be a sheep too. Remember that when Jesus is proclaimed in his glory in Revelation, he's on the throne of God himself, but he looks like a little slain lamb. This is, this is something that, that there is a powerful connection between this for us as Christians. I had a friend in school um, who I think was bullied a lot, and so I think he, he kind of rejected this idea so much. He couldn't stand the idea of being a Christian largely because of this. He wrote, we were in a writing club together, and he always wrote about werewolves um, before it was cool. That was back before everybody was writing about werewolves. And, uh, but his main concern was he thought the world was divided into two groups, the wolves and the sheep. And I think he was so afraid of being a sheep that he had, to, he had to fantasize about the idea of being a wolf. Um, where we as Christians are able to accept my comfort in being a sheep doesn't come from me, it comes from the shepherd. Um, and that's, that's the picture, our tendency is to want to make it about us, when in fact, whether we're sheep or shepherds or how we're living that out, it's really about the over-shepherd. So this is, he needs to feed, Peter is now in the role, he's had the role of catching fish, of catching men, and now feeding sheep. Isn't it intriguing that here you have Peter dripping wet, standing by the fire. He's from a shame and honor culture. He has betrayed his rabbi, his teacher, his master. There's no greater offense here in the Jewish world. For him, he bears fully the shame and horror of having betrayed his friend. The disgust the disgrace, the dishonor, the revulsion, the embarrassment, the indignity within an honor-shame culture, his identity has totally changed. And yet, Peter's self-revulsion does not disqualify him from the calling that Jesus placed on him from the beginning. He's not disqualified in his sin. He's not disqualified in his dishonor. He's not disqualified in what he's done. That's not what disqualifies him. Jesus is still maintains this calling. Jesus is essentially beginning the conversation of saying, I didn't release you from a calling. You, you may think you should be released from the calling. You don't get a vote. I have not released you from this calling. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Not very well. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Not like you want me to. Tend my lambs. Take care of them. Young and old, all of them, shepherd them well, shepherd them all. And that's, that ministry of shepherding of discipleship passes down through the millennia to us. That's still our calling, is to go make disciples. That, that's, you, you might as well call that shepherding. We are the under-shepherds of the over-shepherd, even though we're sheep. We're not very good at it, but that's still our calling. We're called to do this. We are still to be our brother's keepers not to focus in on what we want or what we prefer, but instead to shepherd one another, understanding we're terrible at it. It's a constant process of learning and growing. Now we have the third time we get to the meat of the story. The third time, he says to him a third time, Simon Barjona, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now the commentary, McLaren's commentary, references this third, and I think we can all see that. Did Peter deny him three times? Jesus asks him three times. It's not very subtle. 
McLaren points out, he uses this language, that Jesus with, quote, gracious violence asks him a third time. This is discipline. We need to feel the weight. We talked about this. We need to feel the weight of our sin. We need to feel the horror and the dishonor of our sin. We need to experience that. As human beings, we need to know that. We need to see that. We need to sense that. We don't stay there because of who Christ is and what he's done. But we need that. And Jesus asks him a third time. He's not letting him off the hook. Simon Barjona, do you love me? But there's more to it than it just being the third time. Look at this. So here we have it back. So you remember Jesus says, Simon Barjona, do you agapeo me? Devoted, giving it all. Lord, you know I'm your friend. Simon Barjona, do you agapeo me? Are you, are you willing to give your life for me? Are you willing to die for me? Is your love perfected in me? Lord, you know I phileo you. I'm your friend. I'm super fond. I'm a big fan. That's what I have to give. Notice what Jesus says the third time. Simon Barjona, do you phileo me? Who takes the last step? Who takes this final step between the broken man and the God he has offended? Who takes this final step, the gap between phileo and agapeo? Who, who takes that step? Jesus does. Simon Barjona, then phileo me. If that's what you have to give, then that's what I will take. If that's all you have, then I'll meet you there. Think of how crazy this is. This is the God who, this is, this is Jesus Christ who started on the throne of glory and who came to experience life as a man. And not just a man, but a poor man, a lowly man, a servant. And not just any servant, but a servant all the way to the point of death. And not just any death, but the death of the cross, carrying the wrath of God, the cup itself. This is the God who then comes back. He creates a whole skit for Peter's reclamation. I'm going to, you know what, we're not, you know, you know what I did? Did you imagine? How would we respond in this? Really, Peter? After all I've done, and then I came back, and I humbled myself to recreate your calling. I kept the fish away from the net all night. Did you like that part? I mean, I was hard. I, was, I did that for you. And then I was on the shore, and I made a charcoal fire. I made sure it was a charcoal fire, not just a wood fire, a charcoal fire. I did this for you. And then we broke bread. Remember breaking bread? And then, and then breaking up the fish and passing that out? Do you see all the fish you caught? I did all this for you, and you can't love me like I require? Done. That would be us. At the end of that whole tirade, Jesus goes, and you can't love me like I require? Fine. Then I'll just love you like you need. Fine. Then I'll just take that step and you can love me the best you can. I'll meet you there. Who is this guy? Who does this? When human, we've talked about this. When humans claim to be God, they don't act like this. Here you have God who has come to experience life as a human, and he's taking this last step for a fisherman from Galilee who has nothing that he needs. 
but he reclaims him in this moment. This is why Peter is heartbroken. This is what's going on here. Jesus asks, do you agapeo me twice? Peter answers, Lord, you know I phileo you twice. It then says, Peter is grieved. Elipethe. Is that right? Good. Grieved. Pained. Sorrowed. Brokenhearted. Not just because it's the third time. But because he changed the word. Jesus switches the word, not Peter. This is what just happened there. Before creation, all the way to phileo. This is Peter who's grown up. If that's what you have to give, and Peter knows now, this is all I have to give. And Jesus says, sold. I'll take it. And Jesus isn't done. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk whenever you wanted. It's a fascinating little story here. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. What? This seems so strange. It makes sense that they're talking about clothing because Peter's still standing there dripping wet and he nearly needs to change clothes. You can almost imagine Jesus being like, so I can see that you dress yourself. Someday that's not going to happen. John doesn't want us to be confused by this, so in verse 19 he tells us what this is about. This he said to show you by what kind of death he was to glorify God. See, that's what's going to happen. And then notice this last little phrase. This is almost offhand. Like this is kind of flippant. After all of this, Peter is standing there, I believe, weeping, crushed, his heart broken by the fact that Jesus has restored him, that Jesus has said, I'll meet you where you are, that Jesus has claimed him in the midst of this, and then Jesus says, almost offhand, by the way, follow me. I think that's amazing. He goes back and finishes the calling, finishes the recreation of, of Peter's original calling. Oh yeah, by the way, remember Peter, follow me. Now what about Peter? The most common tradition is that Peter was crucified in Rome about AD 64, 30 or so years after this moment. He's going to be crucified um, that's according to some of the early church fathers from around the year 200 A.D. Jerome wrote in the 300s, and apparently he's the one who said from the church tradition that Peter preferred not to be crucified like his master, like his Lord, that he didn't deserve to face the same punishment as his Lord, so he asked to be crucified upside down. Again, that goes back to that original calling and through this moment and all the way into this. What is Jesus saying here? Next few weeks after Christmas, we're going to talk about who we are as a church. We always do that at the beginning of the year. We're going to dive into some tough topics for us as Christians, the things that make us, they lead us to struggle, the challenges that we have for a few weeks, and then hopefully, Lord willing, move on to Daniel. But one of those is going to be about blessing others, and I want you to see what, what Jesus has done here. He is blessing Peter in the midst of this. That's all you have to give, son. Phileo's all you got, but it won't be the case forever. A day will come, Peter, when you're going to die for me. When you're going, your love will be perfected. When, the agapeo, when you will agapeo me to the point of death, and not just any death, but the death of a servant on a cross, just like me. Someday you are going to live that out. You're not there yet? Okay, if you say so. But you will be. This is a blessing. It feels like a strange blessing to be told you're going to be martyred. 
but it's still a blessing. This is what Peter probably fears more than anything else now is the fact that I will never be more than this. I will never live past the fact that I denied him. And Jesus says, oh yeah, you will. There will come a day when the very thing that you denied me to avoid, you will embrace. Which is what happened. Can I be wholeheartedly devoted to him? Do I agapeo him? This, this passage, part of why this passage creates this whole new picture of love for me is that you have this God who does all of this and all of this and all of this and he just keeps coming. When we talk about God coming near, this isn't just a cute statement that we make during Advent to talk about the fact that Jesus came to earth and experienced life as man, that he came near. Rather than demanding, again, that we follow these paths, the eightfold path, or we perfect the five pillars, or we whatever in order to somehow achieve him, he says, no, I... I came to you, and I come near to you, and I continue to pursue you. This is who, my, who I am. And let me just tell you, for me, frail, man, the idea that Jesus would come another step. I said before, I think that if, that if, the, you know, if the FBI or the CIA or someone that started investigating me to see whether or not I agapeo my Lord, I think they might fall short of conviction. I think they might find some evidence, but they wouldn't find enough. They would see too many mistakes and too many bad decisions and priorities out of whack and, and things like that. And I think they would go like, yeah, I'm not sure that Chris really is fully devoted, that his love is perfected in his relationship with Christ. I don't, I don't think that's the case. And I think they could probably make that argument pretty soundly. So it comforts my soul to recognize that we have a Lord. Because I think they would also find that he's my friend. And that I... I'm his friend. And I, I, I do think that I'm able to say, even when I don't have that, that type of love for him that I ought, I'm, I'm at least that far down the path and Jesus comes and meets us there. Wherever it is that you are on that path, I think we have a God who will meet us where we are, who he comes even further. And that should embarrass us almost. Like we, we should be embarrassed by the fact that he keeps coming even when when we won't come any further, and yet he does. That's who we're talking about. Who is this God? This is the God who we celebrate. <clears throat> when we celebrate a little baby, we celebrate baby Jesus, and sometimes we're going to talk about on Christmas Eve, our favorite Jesus is the baby Jesus. Um, but understand that when he came, even as a baby, he was kicking down the walls, and he was breaking the rules in order to pursue us to gather us to himself. That's what makes us right with him, is not our merit. It's not what we can produce. It's not how we can move forward. It's not how we can make stuff happen. It is whether we can accept the free gift that he offers us. He comes to us and offers us this free gift. So stand with me, if you will, and we're going to pray. If you've, if you've never accepted that free gift, if Jesus standing there offering you the hand, he's walked all the way to you, and he holds out his hand, if you've never taken that hand, to, be, to entrust him for your forever, to make things right between you and the Father. I hope you will. We go through this invitation every week, not just as some tradition, but on the assumption that God's word is spoken to us and that his word, his Holy Spirit, is illuminating some things in our lives so that we'd be able to accept. Sometimes the first thing we need to be able to do is accept his love. So that's what I will pray over us now. Father, Thank you that you love us like this. Thank you that you love like this. That you're a God who loves like this. I'm, I'm just 
time after time blown away by who you are. And yet I still wonder, who is like you? Who is like God? Is there anyone like you? And the answer is no. No one loves like you love. No one continues to reach out like you do. Even in this fallen and broken and messed up world, Lord, we can know your love. And I pray the first thing we'll be able to do is to accept it. And then we'll be able to live that out. That we'll be able to wash each other's feet, to tend each other, to serve each other, to take care of each other, to reach out and touch the unclean like your son did. Lord, I pray you would teach us to love like you have loved. That's what you've called us to. Teach us, Lord, we pray in your son's name. Amen.